Good morning. My name is Depo. I'm an elder here at uh, Trinity Grace, along with my wife, Nikki, who is unfortunately not able to be here with us this morning because she's at home with my daughter, who's been sick since the 4th. Uh, she's had a fever. She's been running a 103 fever for a few days now. So um, if you guys can just uh, pray for both of them, that would be great. Uh, it's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning and to be teaching. Um, I believe the last time I spoke here before this congregation, uh, we explored the concept of death and the afterlife together. And today, I'd like to explore another concept, one that is universal to the human experience. It's a concept that influences so much of our thoughts and our actions and desires and behavior, and that is the concept of time. Time. All right, so... How many of you have seen the final two installations of the Marvel Avengers series, Infinity War and Endgame, right? Raise your hand. All right. Um, if you haven't seen it by now, I apologize in advance for the spoilers that I am about to mention. But then you probably don't care about it anyway because you would have already gone to see it because they are that awesome. So my sermon for you guys who haven't seen it is pretty short. Go and watch Avengers. Okay, we're done with that. Um, Okay, now that we got that out of the way, for the rest of us, we know what the Infinity Stones are and how central they are to the story, right? Um, we could spend the rest of the morning debating just which one of those six Infinity Stones was the most important one, right? But I'm just going to cut that debate short and tell you it was the Time Stone because it's only my opinion that counts this morning. So there you go. All right, the Time Stone. Now, remember how during the battle on Titan in Infinity War... Right? Thanos has Tony Stark, Iron Man, in his grip, and he's about to end Tony's life, right? And then just then, Doctor Strange, in a strange twist of events, hands the time stone to Thanos in exchange for sparing Tony's life. What happens after that? Thanos disappears and he reappears in Wakanda, he wreaks some havoc, he snaps his fingers and puts an end to half of all of the life in the universe including Dr. Strange's life himself, right? Remember just how hopeless we felt at the end of that movie? It was like, what did I just watch? That sucked. <laughs> now, if we flash back to the moment right after Thanos obtains the time stone, Tony Stark asks Dr. Strange a question. He says, why did you do that? And that's the question I had, like, why would you do that? Right? And who can remember what Dr. Strange says in response? Come on. Who remembers? He says, we are in the end game now, right? He says, we're in the end game now. And Tony, Tony's like confused, right? He's struck with bewilderment and a sense of defeat in that moment. He just doesn't quite understand why Strange would do the one thing that he had never vowed to do, which was to give up the time stone. He was supposed to protect the time stone with his life, right? And, and then he gives it up to Thanos. I mean, come on. You're saving one life and sacrificing half the rest of all living beings. I'm no genius, but in finance, we call that a bad trade, right? So everything, though, later makes sense in the final installation of the movie, in Endgame. Why? Because Doctor Strange was the only one who had actually traveled through time to witness the multiple future possibilities, and in every single one of them, the Avengers lose to Thanos. Every single time, except one. Remember how that conversation went? Dr. Strange says, I went forward in time to view alternate <laughs> futures. 
to see all the possible outcomes of the coming conflict. And then Star-Lord, Peter Quill, asks him, says, how many did you see? Dr. Strange says, 14,605. Tony Stark asks him, and how many did we win? Dr. Strange says, one. One possibility, one chance, one sequence of events that needed to unfold precisely in order to achieve victory over Thanos. And of course, we know how the story ends, right? Uh, in the final episode, Tony Stark ends up defeating Thanos. He restores life back to all the universe and all is well that ends well. Okay, that was a long intro. But why did I share that story? Well, one, because it's cool, right? Um, but more importantly, it's because the entire outcome of that story was dependent on that one single time stone, right? And in the same way, nearly everything that we think, say, or do is influenced by time. Yet, scarcely do we ever take the time to ponder what exactly time itself is, right? Our common language, our daily language is characterized by sayings like time waits for no man or time is passing us by, time is of the essence for those lawyers in the room. It's about time such and such things happen. Time seems to be this personified entity that has an unchangeable agenda of its own. It's this force that we are aware of, but we can't wield or control. It's an ever-present limitation on our reality. We never seem to have enough of it, right? Especially we New Yorkers never seem to have enough time. And there's absolutely no way to manipulate time to do our bidding. It creates a universal frame of reference for everyone and everything. We order our lives by it. It defines our very existence. Time is never static. It's always in motion. And you know, time can be linear and sequential in that it delineates a past, a present, and a future. But time can also manifest itself in circular rhythms, right? We have the sunrise and the sunset in the day. We have the seasons in the year. We have the birth, the growth, the decline, the death, and the decay of all living things. And we have the rise and the fall of civilizations, right? Even in Greco-Roman philosophy, they had a way to personify time. They believed that there were gods that represented time. The linear personification of time was called chronos, and that's where we get terms like chronology and chronicles from. Aeon, on the other hand, was the counterpart deity that was associated with cyclical time. And Aeon was believed to carry a celestial sphere with the zodiac signs that symbolized the repetitive and eternal nature of time. So why don't we turn to the Bible, because that's where we're here this morning, right? We are a church, after all. I and mean, we could talk about Avengers all day, but, you know, um, let's think about what the Bible has to say about time. If we open up to the very first sentence of the very first verse of the very first book in the Bible, before there is even the mention of Yahweh Elohim, God himself, what do we encounter? Time. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis says, in the beginning. In the beginning. It sets up time, right? It's the first concept introduced, and right from there to the very end of scriptures, we encounter time in so many different ways. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, exploring what the Bible has to say about it. 
So I did some research and I found a compilation of about 25 different references to time in scripture. I'm not going to go through every single one of them. And even that list itself, even though it's pretty comprehensive, it's not exhaustive, right? So when I started to analyze them, one thing I noticed was just how many of those verses fell into what I would consider four general themes. The first one is that time is a mystery, and therefore, we must be humble and not anxious. The second is that time presents opportunities, and therefore, we must be diligent. The third is that time is slow to unfold, therefore, we must be patient. And the last is that time is appointed, and therefore, we must trust God for his deliverance in the appointed time. So starting off with the first, time being a mystery. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. See, all of us have this yearning, this longing in our heart for something greater, something more permanent, something more lasting, more fulfilling than what we currently experience. We can't quite put words to it, but we know there is a hole there, a longing in our heart that yearns to be fulfilled, right? And I think that is the eternity that God has placed in our hearts. Show me one person who can tell you the complete story of the universe and what has transpired from start to present, and I will show you a liar. Because no one knows for certain. Much of what we think or claim that we know is postulation and theory. And even then, there are a lot of gaps in human knowledge. That scope is just too massive for our comprehension. Not only can we not fully grasp the past, we know almost nothing about the future. So about 20 years ago when I first moved to America, I'm from Nigeria originally, by the way, um, one of the things I found culturally hard, thank you, shout out to Nigeria, um, one of the things I found culturally hard to understand was the use of the word will. Will. See, when I was growing up in Nigeria, whenever we spoke about the future, we would often say, by the grace of God, after making any such statement. But here in America, it's common to say things like, I will do this, or next week, this will happen. And at first, it sounded pretty arrogant to me, because I couldn't understand how people could be so confident and certain about the future. I've since come to understand, though, that it's part of the confidence that comes from the existence of institutions and systems and structures that make life more reliable and somewhat more predictable, right? You flick on a light switch, and there is power. You turn on a tap, and the water flows, right? You wait for the train at the station, and invariably it arrives on schedule, for the most part, anyway. Um, that reliability creates a convenience and a peace of mind. And as a society, that convenience and that comfort, that predictability is what we work for, is what we pay for, is what we live for, what we sometimes fight for, and in many cases, will die for. Most of us who have had a very relatively easy life by global standards have come to take the blessings and successes that we enjoy for granted. We tend to believe that the past is likely to repeat itself in the future. But in reality, I think that confidence is a mirage. We're often reminded of this when a great calamity like the global financial crisis or 9-11 happens, right? It brings us back to the reality that nothing really is 
promised about tomorrow. You know, it's kind of interesting. A study was done recently that showed that people in general tend to be overly optimistic about their future happiness. So when various people of different age groups in various countries around the world were asked to rank their happiness now and their happiness five years from now, most of them imagined themselves being happier in the future than they were now. On average, people scored themselves about five or five and a half out of 10. And in the future, they imagined themselves being about seven out of 10 happier in the future. The only problem, though, is that the average level of happiness across all the various age groups is pretty constant. So let's say you ask the 25 to 30-year-olds, and they say, well, I'm about five happy right now. And then you ask the 30 to 35-year-olds, they say, I'm about five happy right now. And then you ask the 45 to 50-year-olds, and they're about five happy right now. Well, how come anyone then thinks they're going to be happier in the future, right? So we are overly optimistic about what the future holds or what it portends. Scripture says in Proverbs 27:1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. And in James 4:13, it says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city and spend a year there and we'll carry on business and we'll make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then whew, vanishes. Instead, you ought, to, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Those are pretty strong words. So being overconfident or boastful about the future is one way in which some of us learn to deal with the unknown of tomorrow. But another way people deal with the future is with anxiety. Many of us who have experienced some significant amount of difficulty in the past instinctively know that whatever current comfort we have is fleeting and is tenuous. So we have this subcurrent of anxiety that pervades our lives and our thoughts, right? We often worry about what tomorrow is going to bring, whether our safety, our health, our comfort will be threatened, whether everything will be okay, whether tomorrow will be better than today? Well, I have good news for you guys. Neither boasting nor anxiety about the future is the answer. Because if we look at, look at Philippians 4, 6, we see God telling us, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is the answer. Now, having established that we need to be humble and to trust God with everything, right, the story doesn't end there. I want to move on to the second part, right, the second theme. We are creatures made for a purpose. Work is a part of our DNA. And because we're made in God's image, we're made to work because God is a God who is at work. Most of us think that work was a result of the fall, but actually if you read Genesis carefully, you will see that work was intended for us at the moment of creation. See, it's the curse that changed the nature of our work from what it was intended to be to toil, right? Working and toiling are two different things. So then if it is true that we're created to work, and if it remains true 
that when Jesus left, he charged us with the work of making disciples of all nations, we should at least have a philosophy, right, on how we harness the time that we have been given to do the work that we've been tasked with. And as you may guess, the Bible has some things to say about that as well. In the story of Esther, in Esther 4, um, and I'll just give the backdrop quickly. Esther was a poor young girl who was Jewish who ended up marrying the king um, and became the queen. And at the time, the Jews who were living um, in that period were under the threat of being annihilated by their enemies. And um, Mordecai, who was Esther's uncle, basically implored her and asked her to intervene on behalf of the Jews in front of the king. And Esther was kind of waffling and not sure if she really could because her life was literally in danger. If she appeared before the king at the wrong time, she could get summarily executed. Okay? So did Mordecai say to her, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, you're in a tough spot. Um, just do what you can. No, he rebuked her. He said, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, Dr. Tony Evans puts it so well when he says, it is God who has given you your job, your position, your resources, your education, and so much more. It is God who has opened up the opportunities for you to optimize his kingdom purposes. He didn't place you where you were so you could eat figs all day and take selfies of yourself and post it on social media. No, he placed you where you are because you're in the midst of a battle, a war. You're in the midst of a seismic conflict between good versus evil. And to miss your kingdom assignment because you've become too caught up in your own personal kingdom itself is the greatest tragedy that you could ever face. An entire nation was grateful for how Esther responded to Mordecai's rebuke. Their lives were spared. How many more lives might be spared in our culture today when we choose to step up to service, even if it involves our own personal sacrifice. So as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent us. Night is coming when no one can work. Those are the words from John 9:4. See, I believe that if God has put you in a place where you can use your time to do whatever it is, you do it well. If he's putting you in a place where you can use your time to earn money to further his kingdom purposes, then by all means, be diligent about earning that money. Make the most that you can of it and give the most that you can of it. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. If God has given you the gift of emotional intelligence so that people enjoy being in your company and around you, then by all means, attract as many of those people to you as possible and then point them to Jesus. If he blessed you with courage, with eloquence, with hospitality, with influence, use it. Use it for his glory. Colossians 4 says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. Some of you are sitting here today thinking, well, that's all fine and nice. There are all these amazing people out there who have all these gifts. 
I have nothing to offer. Poor me. I'm not attractive. No one likes me. Stop that nonsense right now. Stop it. You have something to offer. I don't care how little it is. I care how faithful and how diligent you are about using what you have. So start with whatever you've got. Get creative. Take advantage of whatever opportunity you have around you to do something with your time. Stop admiring how other people spend their time. That's a form of jealousy and a form of laziness. You've been given the same 24 hours in a day that they have been given. So be opportunistic. Be opportunistic with your time. Proverbs 6 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. And Ephesians 5 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of what? Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It is the Lord's will that you make the most of your time that you've been given here on earth. So I'll wrap this second theme up about time being opportunistic by saying, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So much as time presents opportunities, I think now is an opportune time for me to move on to the next theme, which is our third theme, right? Time is slow to unfold. So therefore, we must learn to exercise patience. Some of you may be sitting here wondering, well, all this talk about time, does God actually experience time the way that I do? I think the answer is yes and no. Second Peter 3 says, Do not forget one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. Think about that. Some of you may be wondering, does it matter whether I do good and obey God's commands? Does he even ever notice? Is there a point? Is there a reward? Is there something for just obeying God and doing all the things I'm supposed to do? Well, Galatians 6 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Some of you may be thinking, Well, I'm tired from all this waiting on God. Waiting sucks, it's not easy. Isaiah has an answer for us. It says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Others of you may be sitting here thinking, 
why does it seem like all my waiting is in vain? People who don't follow God or believe in Jesus seem to be doing just fine around me. In fact, they often seem to be doing better and getting ahead in life. I used to think this way. I would look around and go, man, what am I struggling for? What am I sacrificing for? Right? Unbelievers seem to have it so much better. Well, Psalm 37 says that, uh, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. See, so often we encounter situations where we get tired of waiting. God has either given you a word or a promise, but he has chosen not to reveal the time of fulfillment or his timeline seems too late for your deadline. And so we wait and we wait and we wait and nothing seems to happen. We wait for that right job. It doesn't seem to come. We wait for the right romantic partner or that husband or wife. We wait for that breakthrough in the relationship. I'll tell you a quick story about a lesson in waiting in my life that took about 14 years to materialize. When Nikki and I got married about 15 years ago, one of my first goals was to buy a house. And coming out of college, like so many, we were poor. We had no money. We rented for a couple years, and then we moved to New York City so I could attend law school. After three years of law school and about $120,000 of debt, it was evident that that timeline would have to be delayed. And so I worked for a few years at a law firm, and thankfully I was able to pay off our student loans. And around the same time, we'd been part of a church plant in the, in the South Bronx. We were burned out from doing ministry, and at that point, we had every intention of moving out of New York City and leaving for Washington, D.C. We actually had taken trips down. We had scoped out neighborhoods. We looked at Arlington and Bethesda. We got a broker. We found a house that we liked. We requested a transfer at work. We had a move date in mind. And then during one of our last weeks in the city, our good friends, the birds, invited us to visit their church, this church. And since we had already said goodbye to our old congregation in the South Bronx, we said, why not? Now, John Tyson was uh, preaching that morning, and he said he felt the Lord was calling some of us to stay in the city and plant roots here. We knew at once that he was speaking to us. And so we did. We changed our plans. We committed to New York, and we learned to love the city and to love Harlem. We planted roots. Fast forward about eight years later, we now have two kids. We're living in a two-bedroom, rent-stabilized apartment. Space is growing tighter. We're feeling short on options. We'd looked at places around in Harlem, but they were, we were repeatedly priced out as that neighborhood continued to gentrify. We had scrimped and saved enough for a down payment, but whenever we came close to buying a place, the deal would either fall through or we'd lose out in a bidding war to an all-cash buyer, or the seller would change their minds. How many of you have experienced that, right, who have tried to buy places in New York? You know what I'm talking about. Um, all that time, I still held on to my dream, and I kept praying about it. And God, in his faithfulness, had given me assurances on a couple of occasions through Scripture and through dreams that he would build a house for me. Now, I don't know what that meant, but to me, what good was a promise that seemed distant and impossible to attain? So we kept waiting, 
And then in the summer of 2017, things started going crazy. Our new owner, our new owner acquired our apartment building and started doing some construction work. And um, we started to have leaks in the apartment. We had mice, we had bugs, we had dust and noise. We had reached our limit. And then um, our broker sent us a monthly newsletter and at the bottom was all of the listings of the New York City apartments that uh, she had looked for for us. And then there was this random listing in Tarrytown at the bottom. And we're going, why is Tanya sending us a listing of Tarrytown? Like, we're only interested in New York City. So we didn't give much thought to it. And then the end of summer rolls around, and uh, we go on vacation, and we come back, and it's 2 a.m., right? And the kids are tired. We've had multiple travel delays. And we find that the ceiling in our apartment hallway had collapsed. And that's the picture right there. This is at 2 a.m. when we came back, and plaster and broken glass and cement was all over the floor, right? And to top it off, the super, when I called him up, said, is anything leaking? I said, no. He said, well, it's not an emergency. I'll come later in the morning to take a look at it. I was, I was so mad, so angry. Um, and that was the final straw. So long story short, the next day we went back to that list in Tarrytown, and because it was the only option we had, we prayed with a couple of our fellow elders and went and took a look and liked it and put an offer down. And it was above what we could afford, so we lowballed it and put in an offer that was about 11, 12% below asking. And lo and behold, it was accepted. And so we moved to Tarrytown in December of 2017, never having done any research, never having looked at any other house, never knowing anything about the school system there. And that's our house today. And that was 14 years, 14 years after the original plan. That was about seven years of waiting for Nikki and seven for I, right? And in God's weird sense of humor, guess what the number of our home is? Number 14, Orchard Drive in Tarrytown. I tell you this story, why? Because it's to show that sometimes when God has a plan for us, we have to have the ability to be patient and to wait on it. And when God says it's time to move, just like the Israelites, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, when it was time to move and the Passover came, they had to pack their things and get out of there when the time was right. And so sometimes time seems so slow and waiting seems so long and we don't want to do it. But when God gives you a word, be patient. Be patient to wait on it, wait for his divine intervention and the fullness of his timing to come to pass. Because if you don't, sometimes there are consequences as well. There are blessings when you wait. There are consequences when you don't. Look at the story of uh, Saul in 1 Samuel. Saul was king, and God told him before they go out to war, a sacrifice was supposed to be offered, and the prophet was supposed to do that. And Saul had been instructed by Samuel the prophet to wait for him for seven days. And I pick up the story from there. It says, Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time 
and the Philistines were assembling against us at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I will not have sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Seems to make sense, right? Well, Samuel said, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. For if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. So to wrap up this third theme about the slowness of time and the need for patience, I want to answer one question which might be sitting at the back of your mind right now, which is why does God make us wait? See, I think it's cause it is because God is more interested in shaping our character than he is in satisfying our desires. God wants you to be who he has made you to be. And that's why he makes us wait. It took 400 years, like I said, of slavery in Egypt before God delivered Israel through Moses. It took 40 years for the nation of Israel to wander in the wilderness before getting to the promised land. It took 400 years for the advent of the Messiah after Israel had gotten taken it into captivity in Babylon. And after seven weeks, when Jesus was crucified, it took seven weeks or seven days after he ascended, depending on how you're counting, for the Holy Spirit to be received at Pentecost. In each of those cases, people had to wait for God's promised time. But eventually it came. And God's salvation eventually always manifests itself. And that is the next theme that I want to touch on and the final theme for us today, right? Time is appointed and we must always trust in God's deliverance. So we've talked about three things so far. Time is a mystery. We need to be humble and not anxious. Time is a set of opportunities and we need to be deliberate about seizing the moment. And time is slow and we need to be patient. Now the beautiful thing about God is that though he often keeps us waiting, he eventually always and without doubt shows up. He may show up late according to your timing, but he's right on time when the moment demands it. And that is what Derek was referring to back when he was teaching us about the Kairos moment. Do you guys remember that? It's this ancient Greek word that means it's the right or the critical or the opportune time for something to happen, right? It's that Kairos moment. Jeremiah 29 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So what if you're at a place in your life where you're feeling hemmed in on all sides? You're feeling pressed. Perhaps you're undergoing a period of spiritual attack. Perhaps your colleagues and your co-workers are conspiring against you. They're eager to see your downfall. Well, King David felt the same way, and his reaction was to cry out to God. He says, my times are in your hands, O Lord. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies and from those who pursue me. Maybe you're waiting for a word from the Lord about a specific issue that has been on your heart for a while. You've been praying to God, praying for wisdom, for clarity, for hope, for a revelation perhaps, 
but nothing has been forthcoming. It's like a dark night of the soul. Well, my word of encouragement for you today is from Habakkuk 2. God says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Perhaps you believe that all of the warnings that Jesus came about the end of time is likely not to come to pass anytime soon. I mean, we've been waiting 2,000 years plus, right? It's probably not going to happen today or this week or this month or even this year, we think. We live our lives and we continue on as if there is no future that we know of that is certain. Maybe you think I have some time to be lackadaisical about my faith. I'll get serious about it in the future. Well, let's read Romans 13 together. It says, understand the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What if you've been simply waiting for the Lord to deliver you from whatever struggle and suffering or pain that you're in? Well, I encourage you to take some courage from the words that Moses spoke about God and his timely deliverance. In Exodus 14, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. So then I leave with this. If he says, in the time of my favor, I've heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you, I'm telling you that now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. If there are those of you sitting here today wondering, does God care about me? Does God love me? Does God even know? Does he remember that I exist? Does he see my suffering? Does he see my pain? Does he see my doubt, my confusion? Just remember, God's timing is perfect and his salvation is sure. It is promised and he always delivers on his word. As we come to a close, I just want to refresh, and refresh us on the four things that we've talked about today. Time as being a mystery and the need for us to be humble and not anxious. Time as presenting us with opportunities and the need to be diligent. Time as being slow to unfold and the need for us to be patient. And time as being appointed and the need for us to trust God for his deliverance. I'm going to invite Jen and the worship team to make their way back up um, and to lead us into a time of worship and prayer and communion. But at this point, I know some of you are still sitting here. You're recognizing perhaps your need to be more humble about your expectations of the future. Others of you may realize that anxiety has no place in your life and that you desire to leave your burdens of anxiety with Jesus Christ. Some of you, you may be feeling the need to begin exercising patience and waiting obediently 
for God's Kairos moment to be manifested in your life. Some of you may be sitting here with sadness or with heaviness or with regret in your heart. Regret over opportunities that you've missed, things that you failed to take advantage of. Regret over time, perhaps, that you've wasted. Regret over efforts that cannot be retrieved, that are gone. Regrets over poor choices you may have made in the past. Regrets over failure to wait on God or to be patient for his promises to be fulfilled in your life. Maybe regret over choosing the wrong major in college or over choosing the wrong career path, over choosing the wrong partner even. Maybe regret over that boyfriend who took advantage of you and wasted what you thought were your best years. It can go on and on. There are so many ways we can look at the past and think, you know what, there's no way to get that time back. There's no way to go back and undo what has been done. There's no way for me to make things right that have gone wrong in my life in the past. Well, if you fall into any one of those categories, I have good news for you. God can do the impossible. He can restore even time that has been lost. See, in the book of Joel, and this was the last book in the Old Testament, the prophet painted a a doomed and gloomy picture of an army of locusts that had invaded Israel and desolated the land completely. Everything they had worked for, for years, everything they had built up for years was torn down and completely destroyed by this swarming and invading army that seemed like locusts and by physical locusts themselves, literally. And yet the prophet Joel leaves them with this one promise. He says, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. The creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, the gnawing locusts, that great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of your Lord who has worked wonders for you, and never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. And never again will my people be ashamed. So I want to invite you guys this morning to break away from your habits and your routines just for a little bit this morning and take advantage of the time that we have to come before God in prayer and in worship. I want to invite you to find a prayer partner or maybe come forward. There will be one of our prayer elders and leaders who will be standing here in front ready to pray with you. I want to invite you to bring your concerns and your cares before the Lord today. Let us not waste any more time or any more opportunity. I want to invite the ushers to come forward, um, those who are serving communion. And I'm going to invite uh, Todd to come up as well and lead us in communion. And as we close out in the message this morning, please, please, I implore you, take the time to reflect on where you are. Which of these four themes that I've, I've spoken about this morning, which of them speaks to your heart? Which of them describes your situation? Which of them do you need to come before the Lord about? And take the time, take the opportunity to pray to God this morning. And let me wrap us up in prayer. 
Father, I thank you, Lord God. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your people. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you, Lord God, for your word that has gone out, oh, Lord God. And I thank you that you are able to redeem even what has been lost, even the time that has been stolen from us. Father, this morning as your people sit here, oh, Lord God, I ask that you would do a work, oh, Lord God, that is mighty and miraculous, that you would bring to fruition, oh, Lord God, the work that you're doing, that you would bring to completion the work that you have begun, that you would break chains, that you would bring hope, that you would bring encouragement, you would bring life, oh, Lord God. You would give us, oh, Lord God, just the unction, the wisdom to make the best of the times that we have. I want to invite you guys to stand this morning as we get ready for communion. God, please do what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name.